Section 101 of the Book of Household Management. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Jennings. The Book of Household Management by Isabella Beaton. The Rearing and Management of Children and Diseases of Infancy and Childhood. Chapter 42, Part 3. Rearing by Hand. Articles Necessary and How to Use Them. Preparation of Foods. Baths, Advantages of Rearing by Hand. As we do not for a moment wish to be thought an advocate for an artificial, in preference to the natural course of rearing children, we beg our readers to understand us perfectly on this head. All we desire to prove is the fact that a child can be brought up as well on a spoon dietary as the best example to be found of those reared on the breast, having more strength indeed from the more nutritious food on which it lives. It will be thus less liable to infectious diseases, and more capable of resisting the virulence of any danger that may attack it, and without in any way depreciating the nutriment of its natural food, we wish to impress on the mother's mind that there are many cases of infantine debility, which might eventuate in rickets, curvature of the spine, or mesenteric disease, where the addition to, or total substitution of, an artificial and more stimulating aliment, would not only give tone and strength to the constitution, but at the same time render the employment of mechanical means totally unnecessary. And finally, though we would never, where the mother had the strength to suckle her child, supersede the breast, we would insist on making it a rule to accustom the child as early as possible to the use of an artificial diet, not only that it may acquire more vigor to help it over the ills of childhood, but that in the absence of the mother it might not miss the maternal sustenance and also for the parents' sake, that should the milk, from any cause, become vitiated, or suddenly cease, the child can be made over to the bottle and the spoon, without the slightest apprehension of hurtful consequences. To those persons unacquainted with the system, or who may have been erroneously informed on the matter, the rearing of a child by hand may seem surrounded by innumerable difficulties, and a large amount of personal trouble and anxiety to the nurse or mother who undertakes the duty, this, however, is a fallacy in every respect, except as regards the fact of preparing the food. But even this amount of extra work, by adopting the course we shall lay down, may be reduced to a very small sum of inconvenience. And as respects anxiety, the only thing calling for care is the display of judgment in the preparation of the food. The articles required for the purpose of feeding an infant are a night lamp, with its pan and lid, to keep the food warm, a nursing bottle with a prepared teat, and a small pap saucepan for use by day. Of the lamp we need hardly speak, most mothers being acquainted with its operation. But to those to whom it is unknown we may observe that the flame from the floating rushlight heats the water in the reservoir above, in which the covered pan that contains the food floats, keeping it at such a heat that, when thinned by milk, it will be of a temperature suitable for immediate use. Though many kinds of nursing bottles have been lately invented, and some mounted with india-rubber nipples, the common glass bottle with the calf's teat is equal in cleanliness and utility to any. Besides, the nipple put into the child's mouth is so white and natural in appearance that no child taken from the breast will refuse it. The black artificial ones of kutchuk or gouda percha are unnatural. The prepared teats can be obtained at any chemist's, and as they are kept in spirits, they will require a little soaking in warm water and gentle washing before being tied securely, by means of fine twine, round the neck of the bottle, just sufficient being left projecting for the child to grasp freely in its lips, 
for if left the full length or overlong it will be drawn too far into the mouth and possibly make the infant heave when once properly adjusted the nipple need never be removed till replaced by a new one which will hardly be necessary oftener than once a fortnight though with care one will last for several weeks the nursing bottle should be thoroughly washed and cleaned every day and always rinsed out before and after using it the warm water being squeezed through the nipple to wash out any particles of food that might lodge in the aperture and become sour the teat can always be kept white and soft by turning the end of the bottle when not in use into a narrow jug containing water taking care to dry it first and then to warm it by drawing the food through before putting it into the child's mouth food and its preparation the articles generally employed as food for infants consist of arrowroot bread flour baked flour prepared groats farinaceous food biscuit powder biscuits tops and bottoms and semolina or manna croup as it is otherwise called which like tapioca is the prepared pith of certain vegetable substances of this list the least efficacious though perhaps the most believed in is arrowroot which only as a mere agent for change and then only for a very short time should ever be employed as a means of diet to infancy or childhood it is a thin flatulent and innutritious food and incapable of supporting infantine life with energy bread though the universal regime with the laboring poor where the infant's stomach and digestive powers are a reflex in miniature of the father's should never be given to an infant under three months and even then however finely beaten up and smoothly made is a very questionable diet flour when well boiled though infinitely better than arrowroot is still only a kind of fermentative paste that counteracts its own good by after acidity and flatulence baked flour when cooked into a pale brown mass and finely powdered makes a far superior food to the others and may be considered as a very useful diet especially for a change prepared groats may be classed with arrowroot and raw flour as being innutritious the articles that now follow in our list are all good and such as we could with conscience and safety trust you for the health and development of any child whatever we may observe in this place that an occasional change in the character of the food is highly desirable both as regards the health and benefit of the child and though the interruption should only last for a day the change will be advantageous the packets sold as farinaceous food are unquestionably the best aliment that can be given from the first to a baby and may be continued with the exception of an occasional change without alteration of the material till the child is able to take its regular meals of animal and vegetable food some infants are so constituted as to require a frequent and total change in their system of living seeming to thrive for a certain time on any food given to them but if persevered in too long declining in bulk and appearance as rapidly as they had previously progressed in such cases the food should be immediately changed and when that which appeared to agree best with the child is resumed it should be altered in its quality and perhaps in its consistency for the farinaceous food there are directions with each packet containing instructions for the making but whatever the food employed is enough should be made at once to last the day and night at first about a pint basinful but as the child advances a quart will hardly be too much in all cases let the food boil a sufficient time constantly stirring and taking every precaution that it does not get burnt in which case it is on no account to be used the food should always be made with water 
the whole sweetened at once, and of such a consistency that when poured out, and it has had time to cool, it will cut with the firmness of a pudding or custard. One or two spoonfuls are to be put into the pap saucepan and stood on the hob till the heat has softened it, when enough milk is to be added and carefully mixed with the food, till the whole has the consistency of ordinary cream. It is then to be poured into the nursing bottle, and the food having been drawn through to warm the nipple, it is to be placed in the child's mouth. For the first month or more, half a bottleful will be quite enough to give the infant at one time, but as the child grows it will be necessary not only to increase the quantity given at each time, but also gradually to make its food more consistent, and after the third month to add an egg to every pint basin of food made. At night the mother puts the food into the covered pan of her lamp, instead of the saucepan, that is, enough for one supply, and having lighted the rush she will find on the waking of her child the food sufficiently hot to bear the cooling addition of the milk. But whether night or day the same food should never be heated twice, and what the child leaves should be thrown away. The biscuit powder is used in the same manner as the farinaceous food, and both prepared much after the fashion of making starch. But when tops and bottoms, or the whole biscuit, are employed, they require soaking in cold water for some time previous to boiling. The biscuit, or biscuits, are then to be slowly boiled in as much water as will, when thoroughly soft, allow of their being beaten by a three-pronged fork into a fine, smooth, and even pulp, and which, when poured into a basin and become cold, will cut out like a custard. If two large biscuits have been so treated, and the child is six or seven months old, beat up two eggs, sufficient sugar to properly sweeten it, and about a pint of skim milk. Pour this on the beaten biscuit in the saucepan, stirring constantly. Boil for about five minutes, pour into a basin, and use, when cold, in the same manner as the other. This makes an admirable food, at once nutritious and strengthening. When tops and bottoms or rusks are used, the quantity of the egg may be reduced, or altogether omitted. Semolina, or manna croup, being in little hard grains, like a fine millet seed, must be boiled for some time, and the milk, sugar, and egg added to it on the fire, and boiled for a few minutes longer, and when cold used as the other preparations. Many persons entertain a belief that cow's milk is hurtful to infants, and consequently refrain from giving it, but this is a very great mistake, for both sugar and milk should form a large portion of every meal an infant takes. Teething and Convulsions fits, etc., the consequence of dentition and how to be treated, the number and order of the teeth, and the manner in which they are cut, first and second set. About three months after birth, the infant's troubles may be said to begin. Teeth commence forming in the gums, causing pain and irritation in the mouth, and which, but for the saliva it causes to flow so abundantly, would be attended with very serious consequences. At the same time, the mother frequently relaxes in the punctuality of the regimen imposed on her, and taking some unusual or different food, excites diarrhea or irritation in her child's stomach, which not unfrequently results in a rash on the skin, or slight febrile symptoms, which if not subdued in their outset, superinduce some more serious form of infantine disease. But as a general rule, the teeth are the primary cause of much of the child's sufferings, in consequence of the state of nervous and functional irritation into which the system is thrown by their formation and progress out of the jaw and through the gums. We propose beginning this branch of our subject with that most fertile source of an infant's suffering, teething. 
that this subject may be better understood by the nurse and mother, and the reason of the constitutional disturbance that, to a greater or lesser degree, is experienced by all infants, may be made intelligible to those who have the care of children. We shall commence by giving a brief account of the formation of the teeth, the age at which they appear in the mouth, and the order in which they pierce the gums. The organs of mastication in the adult consist of thirty-two distinct teeth, sixteen in either jaw, being in fact a double set. The teeth are divided into four incisors, two canine, four first and second grinders, and six molars. But in childhood the complement or first set consists of only twenty, and these only make their appearance as the development of the frame indicates the requirement of a different kind of food for the support of the system. At birth some of the first cut teeth are found in the cavities of the jaw, in a very small and rudimentary form, but this is by no means universal. About the third month, the jaws, which are hollow and divided into separate cells, begin to expand, making room for the slowly developing teeth, which, arranged for beauty and economy of space lengthwise, gradually turn their tops upwards, piercing the gum by their edges, which, being sharp, assist in cutting a passage through the soft parts. There is no particular period at which children cut their teeth, some being remarkably early, and others equally late. The earliest age that we have ourselves ever known as a reliable fact was six weeks. Such peculiarities are generally hereditary, and as in this case common to a whole family. The two extremes are probably represented by six and sixteen months. Pain and driveling are the usual, but by no means the general, indications of teething. About the sixth month, the gums become tense and swollen, presenting a red, shiny appearance, while the salivary glands pour out an unusual quantity of saliva. After a time a white line or round spot is observed on the top of one part of the gums, and the sharp edge of the tooth may be felt beneath if the finger is gently pressed on the part. Through these white spots the teeth burst their way in the following order. Two incisors in the lower jaw are first cut, though in general some weeks elapse between the appearance of the first and the advent of the second. The next teeth cut are the four incisors of the upper jaw. The next in order are the remaining two incisors of the bottom, one on each side, then two top and two bottom on each side, but not joining the incisors. And lastly, about the eighteenth or twentieth month, the four eye teeth, filling up the space left between the side teeth and the incisors, thus completing the infant's set of sixteen. Sometimes at the same period, but more frequently some months later, four more double teeth slowly make their appearance, one on each side of each jaw, completing the entire series of the child's first set of twenty teeth. It is asserted that a child, while cutting its teeth, should either dribble excessively, vomit after every meal, or be greatly relaxed. Though one or the other, or all of these at once, may attend a case of teething, it by no means follows that any one of them should accompany this process of nature though there can be no doubt that where the pain consequent on the unyielding state of the gums and the firmness of the skin that covers the tooth is severe, a copious discharge of saliva acts beneficially in saving the head, and also in guarding the child from those dangerous attacks of fits to which many children in their teething are liable. The symptoms that generally indicate the cutting of teeth, in addition to the inflamed and swollen state of the gums, and increased flow of saliva, are the restless and peevish state of the child, the hands being thrust into the mouth, and the evident pleasure imparted by rubbing the finger or nail gently along the gum. 
the lips are often excoriated, and the functions of the stomach or bowels are out of order. In severe cases, occurring in unhealthy or scrofulous children, there are from the first considerable fever, disturbed sleep, fretfulness, diarrhea, rolling of the eyes, convulsive startings, laborious breathing, coma or unnatural sleep, ending, unless the head is quickly relieved, in death. The treatment in all cases of painful teething is remarkably simple, and consists in keeping the body cool by mild apparent medicines, allaying the irritation in the gums by friction with a rough ivory ring or a stale crust of bread, and when the head, lungs, or any organ is overloaded or unduly excited, to use the hot bath, and by throwing the body into a perspiration, equalize the circulation, and relieve the system from the danger of a fatal termination. Besides these, there is another means, but that must be employed by a medical man, namely scarifying the gums, an operation always safe, and which, when judiciously performed, and at a critical opportunity, will often snatch the child from the grasp of death. There are few subjects on which mothers have formed such strong and mistaken opinions as on that of lancing an infant's gums, some rather seeing their child go into fits, and by the unrelieved irritation and dangering inflammation of the brain, water on the head, rickets, and other lingering affections, that permit the surgeon to afford instant relief by cutting through the hard skin, which, like a bladder over the stopper of a bottle, effectually confines the tooth to the socket, and prevents it piercing the soft, spongy substance of the gum. This prejudice is a great error, as we shall presently show, for, so far from hurting the child, there is nothing that will so soon convert an infant's tears into smiles as scarifying the gums in painful teething, that is, if effectually done, and the skin of the tooth be divided. Though teething is a natural function, and to an infant in perfect health should be unproductive of pain, yet in general it is not only a fertile cause of suffering, but often a source of alarm and danger, the former from irritation in the stomach and bowels, deranging the whole economy of the system, and the latter from coma and fits, that may excite alarm in severe cases, and the danger that eventuates in some instances from organic disease of the head or spinal marrow. We shall say nothing in this place of rickets, or water on the head, which are frequent results of dental irritation, but proceed to finish our remarks on the treatment of teething. Though strongly advocating the lancing of the gums in teething, and when there are any severe head symptoms, yet it should never be needlessly done, or before being satisfied that the tooth is fully formed and is out of the socket and under the gum. When assured on these points, the gum should be cut lengthwise, and from the top of the gum downwards to the tooth, in a horizontal direction, thus, and for about half an inch in length. The operation is then to be repeated in a transverse direction, cutting across the gum, in the center of the first incision, and forming a cross, thus. The object of this double incision is to ensure a retraction of the cut parts, and leave an open way for the tooth to start from, an advantage not to be obtained when only one incision is made, for unless the tooth immediately follows the lancing, the opening reunites, and the operation has to be repeated. That this operation is very little or not at all painful is evidenced by the suddenness with which the infant falls asleep after the lancing and awakes in apparently perfect health, though immediately before the use of the gum lancet the child may have been shrieking or in convulsions. Convulsions, or infantine fits. From their birth till after teething, 
Infants are more or less subject or liable to sudden fits, which often without any assignable cause will attack the child in a moment, and well in the mother's arms, which according to their frequency and the age and strength of the infant are either slight or dangerous. Whatever may have been the remote cause, the immediate one is some irritation of the nervous system, causing convulsions, or an effusion to the head, inducing coma. In the first instance, the infant cries out with a quick, short scream, rolls up its eyes, arches its body backwards, its arms become bent and fixed, and the fingers parted. The lips and eyelids assume a dusky, leaden color, while the face remains pale, and the eyes open, glassy, or staring. This condition may or may not be attended with muscular twitchings of the mouth and convulsive plunges of the arms. The fit generally lasts from one to three minutes, when the child recovers with a sigh and the relaxation of the body. In the other case, the infant is attacked at once with total insensibility and relaxation of the limbs, coldness of the body, and suppressed breathing. The eyes, when open, being dilated and presenting a dim, glistening appearance, the infant appearing for the moment to be dead. Treatment The first step in either case is to immerse the child in a hot bath up to the chin, or if sufficient hot water cannot be procured to cover the body, make a hip bath of what can be obtained, and while the left hand supports the child in a sitting or recumbent position, with the right scoop up the water and run it over the chest of the patient. When sufficient water can be obtained, the spine should be briskly rubbed well in the bath. When this cannot be done, lay the child on the knees, and with the fingers dipped in brandy, rub the whole length of the spine vigorously for two or three minutes, and when restored to consciousness, give occasionally a teaspoonful of weak brandy and water, or wine and water. An hour after the bath, it may be necessary to give an aperient powder, possibly also to repeat the dose for once or twice every three hours, in which case the following prescription is to be employed. Take of powdered scammony, six grains, gray powder, six grains, antimonial powder, four grains, lump sugar, twenty grains. Mix thoroughly and divide into three powders, which are to be taken as advised for an infant one year old. For younger or weakly infants, divide into four powders and give as the other. For thirst and febrile symptoms, give drinks of barley water or cold water, and every three hours put ten to fifteen drops of spirits of sweet nitre in a dessert spoonful of either beverage. Thrush and its treatment. This is a disease to which infants are peculiarly subject, and in whom alone it may be said to be a disease. For when thrush shows itself in adult or advanced life, it is not as a disease proper, but only as a symptom or accessory of some other ailment generally of a chronic character, and should no more be classed as a separate affection than the petechiae, or dark-coloured spots that appear in malignant measles, may be considered a distinct affection. Thrush is a disease of the follicles of the mucous membrane of the alimentary canal, whereby there are formed small vesicles, or bladders, filled with a thick mucous secretion, which, bursting, discharge their contents, and form minute ulcers in the centre of each vessel. To make this formal but unavoidable description intelligible, we must beg the reader's patience while we briefly explain terms that may appear to many so unmeaning, and make the pathology of thrush fully familiar. The whole digestive canal, of which the stomach and bowels are only a part, is covered from the lips, eyes, and ears downward, with a thin, hairy tissue, like the skin that lines the inside of an egg, called the mucous membrane. 
This membrane is dotted all over in a state of health by imperceptible points called follicles, through which the saliva or mucus secreted by the membrane is poured out. These follicles, or little glands, then, becoming enlarged and filled with a congealed fluid, constitute thrush in its first stage. And when the child's lips and mouth appear a mass of small pearls, then, as these break and discharge, the second stage, or that of ulceration, sets in. Symptoms Thrush is generally preceded by considerable irritation, by the child crying and fretting, showing more than ordinary redness of the lips and nostrils, hot, fetid breath, with relaxed bowels and dark, feculent evacuations. The water is scanty and high-coloured, whilst considerable difficulty in swallowing, and much thirst, are the other symptoms which a careful observation of the little patient makes manifest. The situation and character of thrush show at once that the cause is some irritation of the mucous membrane, and can proceed only from the nature and quality of the food. Before weaning this must be looked for in the mother, and the condition of the milk. After that time in the crude and indigestible nature of the food given. In either case, this exciting cause of the disease must be at once stopped. When it proceeds from the mother, it is always best to begin by physicking the infant through the parent. That is to say, let the parent first take the medicine, which will sufficiently affect the child through the milk. This plan has the double object of benefiting the patient, and at the same time correcting the state of the mother, and improving the condition of her milk. In the other case, when the child is being fed by hand, then proceed by totally altering the style of aliment given and substituting farinaceous food, custards, blancmange, and ground rice puddings. As an apparent medicine for the mother, the best thing she can take is a dessert spoonful of carbonate of magnesia once or twice a day, in a cup of cold water, and every second day for two or three times an apparent pill. As the thrush extends all over the mouth, throat, stomach, and bowels, the irritation to the child from such an extent of diseased surface is proportionately great and before attempting to act on such a tender surface by opening medicine, the better plan is to soothe by an emollient mixture, and for that purpose let the following be prepared. Take of castor oil, two drams, sugar, one dram, mucilage or powdered gum arabic, half a dram. Triturate till the oil is incorporated, then add slowly mint water, one ounce and a half, laudanum, ten drops half a teaspoonful three times a day to an infant from one to two years old, a teaspoonful from two to three years old, and a dessert spoonful at any age over that time. After two days' use of the mixture, one of the following powders should be given twice a day, accompanied with one dose daily of the mixture, grey powder, 20 grains, powdered rhubarb, 15 grains, scammony, 10 grains, mix, divide into 12 powders for one year, eight powders from one to two, and six powders from two to six years old. After that age, double the strength by giving the quantity of two powders at once. It is sometimes customary to apply borax and honey to the mouth for thrush, but it is always better to treat the disease constitutionally rather than locally. The first steps, therefore, to be adopted are to remove or correct the exciting cause, the mother's milk or food. Allay irritation by a warm bath and the castor oil mixture, followed by and conjoined with the powders. To those, however, who wish to try the honey process, the best preparation to use is the following. Rub down one ounce of honey with two drams of tincture of myrrh, 
and apply it to the lips and mouth every four to six hours. It is a popular belief, and one most devoutly cherished by many nurses and elderly persons, that everybody must at some time of their life between birth and death have an attack of thrush, and if not in infancy or prime of life, it will surely attack them on their deathbed, in a form more malignant than if the patient had been affected with the malady earlier. The black thrush, with which they are then reported to be affected, being in all probability the petechiae or purple spots that characterize the worst form, and often the last stage, of typhoid fever. In general, very little medicine is needed in this disease of the thrush. An alterative powder, or a little magnesia, given once or twice, being all with the warm bath that in the great majority of cases is needed to restore the mucous membrane to health. As thrush is caused by an excess of heat, or overaction in the lining membrane of the stomach and bowels, whatever will counteract this state by throwing the heat on the surface must materially benefit, if not cure, the disease. And that means every mother has at hand in the form of a warm bath. After the application of this, a little magnesia to correct the acidity existing along the surface of the mucous membrane is often all that is needed to throw the system into such a state as will effect its own cure. This favorable state is indicated by an excessive flow of saliva, or what is called dribbling, and by a considerable amount of relaxation of the bowels, a condition that must not be mistaken for diarrhea, and checked as if a disease, but rather for the day or two it continues, encouraged as a critical evacuant. Should there be much debility in the convalescence, half a teaspoonful of stee wine, given twice a day in a little barley water, will be found sufficient for all the purposes of a tonic. This, with the precaution of changing the child's food, or when it lives on the mother, of correcting the quality of the milk by changing her own diet, and by means of an antacid or a perient, improving the state of the secretion. Such is all the treatment that this disease in general requires. End of section 101